So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Onai, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Aprath, that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. And while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servants, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. 
Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his son Esau and Jacob buried him. Thanks very much, Catherine. It's good to see you all today. The name of this um, church, LCBC, as you probably know, doesn't just stand for Long Crendon Baptist Church. It also stands for Lives Changed by Christ. That's our mission, our vision, to see lives changed by Christ. We know we cannot change lives ourselves, however gifted we may be in, in talking about Jesus, in evangelism. But Jesus, by his grace, can change the most hardened atheist. And he can cause them to put their trust in Jesus Christ. This book I've been reading um, recently called City Lives tells the stories of changed lives. Uh, One of which is that of Jonathan Aitken, a former cabinet minister um, who was in prison for perjury. Um, And during that period when he lost everything... He also embarked on a spiritual journey, which led to a new life of commitment to Christ. He identified, he writes in the book, at the root of his evils as pride, and said, pride blinded me. He said, pride puts such a roadblock between yourself and God. It is, as C.S. Lewis described it, the complete anti-God state of mind. He said, I reached the point fairly quickly of seeing the magnitude of my own sin, I didn't waste time arguing about that. I knew I'd done wrong and pleaded guilty. That acknowledgement of wrongdoing marked the start of a journey uh, to faith uh, over the next 12 months, which uh, he described as a bumpy ride with many twists and turns. But by the end of his life, um, by the end of the journey, sorry, his life's not come to an end yet, um, he said his life had changed in three key ways. Uh, There was an upward change. Um, in his relationship with God. There was an outward change in his relationship with others. And there was an inward change, characterized by a sense of peace, which he said he had never known as a politician. Shortly before going to prison, he he wrote this. He said, "By by all normal expectations, I should be apprehensive, depressed, on the edge of breakdown, tormented by pressures, and turmoil, hating my enemies and despairing of my future. Yet I'm in none of these moods. Instead, I'm calm, contented, tranquil, often joyful, full of love for my family and friends, and brimming with positive hope for the future. If we are Christians here this morning, we too will have experienced that wonderful change in our lives. We might not know exactly when that moment of conversion took place, But we will know if we've got to our destination. We will know if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Saviour. And we're living for him. That doesn't mean we won't still mess up. um, But God will use our mistakes, he will use our challenges in life to change us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians, which Wolsey read out at the beginning of our service, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Well, as we come to the end of our series in Genesis on the character of Jacob, we've seen a big transformation in his character. But one which has taken many years. It started when Jacob left his homeland in disgrace, fleeing from his brother who wanted to, to kill him after he had cheated him out of his blessing. And on that first night, um, you might remember when Jacob was alone with nothing but a stone for his pillow, God appeared to him in a dream. And he showed him a stairway to heaven. A stairway which pointed ultimately to Jesus as that stairway to heaven. The one who opens up the access to God without us having to try and somehow climb it ourselves. And God made Jacob this promise. He said, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. It's an amazing promise. It wasn't a promise which Jacob deserved in any way, according to what he'd done. But it was a promise which God gave out of his mercy. And having had that amazing encounter with God, which left Jacob afraid and in awe of the person he just encountered, he too made a promise. He said, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth. What Jacob didn't realize at that time was just how long it would take before he would return to his father's household. How long it would take for him to fully relinquish control over his life and make the Lord his God. For most of his life, he'd taken things into his own hands, even resorting to deceit to get what he wanted. And God had to bring about change in his life the hard way, culminating that chapter we looked at last week in chapter 32 with a wrestling match with God. It was only after God wrenched Jacob's hip that he finally surrendered full control over his life to God. And recognizing his total dependence on God for everything, he, he clung on to him until God blessed him. It's taken 20 years to get to this point of submission. And even then, the process of change in Jacob has not yet come to an end, as we will see. But in these last chapters, 33 to 35, what we see is a very different man from the one who left Beersheba 20 years ago. And the changes we see in Jacob are changes that... Um, Jonathan Aiken would say he has experienced, and there are changes which, um, if we're Christians, I'm sure we will say we have experienced. And there are changes you can experience if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. So how does a relationship with Jesus change us? Well, it means, first of all, we can enjoy peace and reconciliation. Let's go back to um, where we left the story last week in the end of chapter 32. Uh, you remember Jacob had been busy making his own plans about how he would deal with the potential threats of his brother Esau. We read how he'd sent a peace offering with his messengers. And they'd come back with a message that Esau was on his way with 400 men. It caused Jacob great fear, distress, uh, and made him divide up the camp, hoping that at least some would escape. But then he prayed... 
and he asks God to save him and his family. He sends them all across the river, and he remains alone where he had that encounter with God. And that's where he gave up control of his life to God and received the blessing. And the next thing we read in verse 1 of chapter 33, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. He divides up the children, the the mothers and servants, and uh, went on ahead, bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But then there's this amazing scene where it says in verse 4, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. It's a wonderful picture of reconciliation. Over the 20 years in which they'd not seen each other, Esau's anger and resentment at his brother could have grown deeper and deeper, and yet, is as if he's completely forgotten that original crime. I wonder if it reminds you of another story in the Bible in the New Testament. If you've got your Bibles handy, let's flick to, or go to, to right to the back of the Bible, to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. on page 1048 of the church Bibles, 1049. It's the parable of the prodigal son, where the younger son demanded his share of his father's inheritance, and he went off and wasted it in wild living. And when he was at rock bottom, he came to his senses, he realized that he'd sinned against his father, he'd sinned against God, and went back to to ask his father for forgiveness. Have a look at verse 20. It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It's exactly the same language, isn't it? The father had been rejected by his son, who was more interested in his father's money than in a relationship with him. And he'd taken off. And when he came back, sorry for all the wrong he'd done, his father didn't wait for him to come and ask for his forgiveness. He ran to him. Even before his son had opened his mouth, he forgave him. He didn't make him feel guilty, make him deserve his forgiveness. He didn't ask him to prove that he was totally repentant. It's an amazing story of God's mercy and a story that each one of us can relate to. If we are Christians, we might not have strayed as far as the prodigal son, but each one of us has a tendency in our heart to stray from God. And the only way we can be reconciled to God is through his mercy. To be made right with the God who made us brings an incredible peace. And if you've not yet known that peace, then maybe today is a good opportunity to come before Jesus in humility and ask for his forgiveness. If you are a Christian, but maybe a particular sin has crept into your life today, then maybe today is a time to deal with that and again, ask God to deal with it. As we become reconciled to God and at peace with him, so we also become peacemakers, those who seek reconciliation with others, those who seek to serve others. Let's go back to Genesis 33. Esau, uh, Jacob sends all these flocks and herds as a gift to Jacob, uh, to, to Esau. 
And Esau asked Jacob in verse 8, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. Esau declines the gift, but Jacob insists in verse 10. He says, if I have found, let's start at verse 10, if no plea, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. That is an amazing change, isn't it? Before Jacob was grasper, he was deceiver, he looked to get all he could for himself. Now he realizes that all he has has come from God. He left with nothing and is returning home full. But he's now more interested in living at peace with his brother than holding on to his possessions. He says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. That is the wonderful experience of forgiveness and reconciliation is like seeing the face of God because only through God's grace would it have been possible for his brother to forgive him, for this reconciliation to take place. Well, unfortunately, although Jacob is a changed man, he's not yet perfect as none of us is. Esau is keen to take him back home with him, but Jacob comes up with an excuse not to go with him even though God has promised him that he will bring him back to his homeland. That is his destination. That that is where he should be going. But instead he goes to the city of Shechem in Canaan. Just if you're trying to work out where all this is, um, this is Haran where Jacob went for for 20 years. He's come back. This is where he has the encounter with God, the struggle with God, and now he's crossed the Jordan. And instead of going back to Beersheba, with Esau, he stops up here in Canaan, in Shechem. As we read in the next chapter, we've got time to go through that today in detail, but we find that that wasn't a good move. In chapter 34, we read how his daughter Dinah is raped by the son of the ruler of that area, who then wants to marry her. Two of her brothers, Simeon and Levi, knew it would be wrong for her to marry a Canaanite but followed in their father's footsteps by practicing deceit, says in verse 13, and end up killing all the men of the city. Jacob, at the end of that chapter, is angry with his sons. He's now a peace lover. He fears for the safety of his family. But he needs also to accept his responsibility for putting his family in that situation. And not even this incident appears to have made Jacob remember his promise that he should be going home to his homeland where God said he would take him. And so God has to say to him directly in the first verse of chapter 35, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Which brings us on to our our next point, to have our lives changed by Christ means that we can enjoy true worship. True worship is to submit yourself to God with your whole life. Uh, Or in the words of Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your strength. That's just not just a little bit or even a lot, but with everything. Which means that if there is something that is threatening to come in the way between you and God, it means to get rid of it. That sounds like a rule you have to keep, but actually it's a way of enjoying God more because you're totally focused on him. There are no distractions. I find it hard these days to find time to watch a whole football match on TV. For me, it seems just 90 minutes is a long time just to sit in front of the TV watching football. Um, So I'll probably try and do something else at the same time, maybe go on to my my iPad or read a book or something. Um, Of course, all that means is you don't really enjoy the match because you're not focused on it. You're distracted. That's why watching a live match is more enjoyable because you're there, you're focusing just on what is in front of you. That's why when looking after children, you'll enjoy them more if you're not trying to do other things at the same time but focusing on the child themselves. That's why coming to church and worshipping with others is so enjoyable because we're focused on God. We're there with the fellow worshippers. When Jacob is called to go to Bethel to build an altar to God. He knows that he needs to do something about the things that are hindering the true worship of God by his family. And so he says in verse 2, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves and change your clothes, then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who has answered me in the day of my distress, who's gone with me wherever I have gone. You may remember when they left Haran, Rachel stole some of her father's household gods and heard any more about them, but clearly they had a negative impact on the relationship with God. And so at Jacob's orders, they they give him their gods, he buries them and puts them to death. We don't know why they kept hold of them, what they um, did with them, but maybe they They gave them some sort of form of security. They trusted in these idols more than God. Be like those who may carry a a St. Christopher with them when they travel, as though that's somehow going to keep them safe. What are the things we are holding on to for our comfort, our security? Things maybe we are trusting in God more. We're trusting in more than in God. Is it our, our job? Is it our possessions? Our savings, maybe our human capacity, as we were looking at last week, to control things. None of those things are bad if we're we're being sensible and wise. But if we put more trust in them than in God, then they become a hindrance to our worship. The more we are able to live by faith, the more we'll be able to experience the joy of God, the true worship. Well, having been obedient to God and thrown away all these these things, as Jacob and his family set out, we're told in verse 5, the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. They were safe. Once they put their trust in God, they didn't need to fear anyone else, anything or anyone. Well, finally, to have our lives changed by Christ means we can enjoy God's blessings and promises. Verse 9, after Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. 
that you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Last week in that struggle, we, we saw that God said he would change his name. Um, and now he's done that. He's confirming that it was him who wrestled with him. When Jacob asked his name last time, you may remember that he, he didn't answer. But now God tells him, unprompted, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. And he reaffirms the words of the covenant blessing, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. Kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. We're left with the question, of course, well, how exactly will God do that? And the amazing thing about this story of one family 4,000 years ago, which would make a great soap opera, wouldn't it, is that it forms an important part of God's overarching plan of salvation, that plan that he created before he created the world. In the second half of the, the chapter 35, we, we find out a bit more about that plan. The families start out on the, the final leg of their trip back home, and sadly, Rachel dies in childbirth. Before she does, she gives birth to another son, who Jacob calls Benjamin, son of my right hand. Benjamin brings a number of children, up to 12, who will later form the 12 tribes of Israel. But if there are now 12 children or 12 tribes of Israel, through which one will the promise come? How will that work? Let's just skip ahead to chapter 49. This is Jacob on his deathbed. He calls for his sons to, to gather round. And he speaks to them each in turn in, in the order in which they were born. Normally the firstborn would be the one who receives the blessing. Um, but he says to Reuben that um, he's been disqualified effectively for going up onto his father's bed and defiling it. Simeon and Levi, likewise, for, for their anger, for killing, for men. And he comes to Judah. And he says to Judah in verse 10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter and milk. Of course, he's pointing to Jesus, the one who will come through the line of Judah many hundreds of years later. God's timescales are different from ours. He has his saving plan in mind, not just at the time of Jacob, but before the creation of the world. But every detail he works out, every one of his promises he keeps, if we go back to chapter 35, towards the end there of the chapter, verse 27, having promised that, Jacob would, that God would bring Jacob home, 
here we see the homecoming. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. The promise that God had made him had been fulfilled, and the promise that Jacob had made to God had been fulfilled. It's been a long way round. It wasn't exactly the most direct route, but the, the lost son, the estranged son, has been reunited with his father and his brother. And his father, we're told, lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The two sons who hated each other are now working together in the last act for their father. Our finite minds cannot grasp just how big God is. God is infinite, and yet he's interested in every detail of our lives. He's working in us. He's working through us to prepare us for the day when his son will come and gather his people to be with him forever. Jacob is not great material to work with, is he? But God never gave up on him. None of us is great material to work with, but God never gives up on us. When Jacob made that journey to Bethel, it was because God had kept his promise up to that time. He said, then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who's been with me wherever I have gone. God is faithful to his promises. Jacob is walking by faith in those promises. Jacob's homecoming was coming back to where he knows he's secure in God's love, where he can simply receive God's blessing rather than try and strive for it. I pray that we would seek to remain close to God, to enjoy the peace of reconciliation with him, of reconciliation with each other, to enjoy true worship, knowing that we've thrown off all those things that would hinder that relationship with God. And that we would enjoy his wonderful blessings and his wonderful promises. Most importantly, this one from 2 Corinthians, which we'll finish with. We all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Let's spend a moment of quiet um, speaking to the Lord and asking him to show us what particular thing we need to be made aware of in our lives at this time. And do your own business with God. If there are any here this morning who have not yet done that, we do pray that they would call out to you now. And as they do so, they will enjoy that peace that we have with you. Father, we thank you for the work you're still doing in our lives and continue to do. We pray that um, you would work in us what needs to be done. Thank you that you are preparing us for that day when we meet with Jesus Christ face to face and we see you in all your glory. Father, we thank you for your, your many blessings and promises and we pray that as we stay close to you, as we 
throw off all those things that would hinder us, that we would enjoy that wonderful relationship with you, that we'd walk in faith, trusting in your promises, and would enjoy true worship with you. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.